Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Part of making a successful and healthy organization means making sure that yours is one that takes diversity and inclusion seriously. One of the largest hurdles towards achieving diversity and inclusion is a tricky one, unconscious bias. This form of bias is, as the name suggests, hidden from those who possess it, and we all possess biases. These biases can heavily hinder diversity efforts at every stage, from selecting candidates to promoting employees. Today's guest specializes in, among other things, identifying, overcoming, and eliminating unconscious bias. Brad Fetterman is the Chief Executive Officer of Performance Point, as well as an author, a speaker, and a consultant with more than 25 years of corporate experience in various aspects of human resources. Brad will be co-hosting a session titled Eradicating Unconscious Bias, How to Build a Diverse Workplace and Equalize Hiring, Pay, and Performance-Based Decisions on November 14th in Nashville, Tennessee, at our event, HR Comply 2019. Please consider joining us for the event. We'll have more information and links in the description. Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's jump right in. For those of our listeners that are not familiar with unconscious bias, would you mind giving us an overview? Sure. Every single one of us has biases. I mean, the reality is that we take in so much data, our conscious mind cannot process it all. And so we create shortcuts in our head for making decisions. And those shortcuts are based on a variety of things, experiences, um, and our background, what we're exposed to. And, and so most of the time, those shortcuts work for us. But in some cases, uh, they actually cause us to make decisions that are not productive, especially when it comes to other people who are different than us. And, and so what it is, is it's bias that we're not aware of because it's happening below our conscious mind. And uh, as you mentioned, this is everyone has them. Um, typically, things that everyone have, we can kind of take for granted or, you know, equalize out of an equation, but this thing is particularly dangerous. Can you just explain a little bit why? Sure. You know, I actually think it's an opportunity for people to learn. And so when we approach this, we approach this from creating bridges as opposed to um, focusing on on the danger. But you're right. It can be dangerous. Uh, You know, it can be something as simple as uh, meeting two of your employees. And one of your employees happens to uh, have gone to a, has, has a member of a fraternity that you are a member of, and the other one isn't. And so by the time that conversation ends, the one that was a member of your fraternity feels very welcome and accepted because you spent time talking about that. You kind of affirmed a strong relationship with that person. And the other person doesn't feel like they have a connection with you and, in fact, feels as though they are starting in a hole comparatively to their peer. Uh, and so you didn't do anything wrong by it, but you've just created a situation where one person feels included, valued in an organization, and the other one doesn't. And that can happen across gender, race, 
sexual orientation, all kinds of things. And so what we end up doing is we end up creating problems, sometimes lawsuits, sometimes other challenges, productivity challenges, engagement challenges, turnover challenges with our employees and in other facets of our life uh, because we're not aware of how we're coming across, whether that be something that is explicit or something that is subtle. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people talk about bias during, you know, right from the beginning, right when someone has a job opening and they're looking at resumes, you know, and if this isn't addressed, it's a situation where, okay, so you have people making bias decisions uh, unbeknownst to themselves about who's coming into the company. And then that's just the beginning, you know, then, then like you say, it could be for performance reviews or it could be for, um, you know, promotions or who you fire, who you don't, who you chastise, who you don't, I and mean, make a really pervade an organization. I agree with you. And in fact, there's a wonderful research uh, study where they took resumes and they actually had the same resumes, one with what would be considered a traditional kind of conservative white name, if you will. I don't want to say conservative, but a typical name, John Smith, right? Uh, very common. And the other one had more of what would be perceived as an ethnic name. And the the resume content was the same but when they sent the resumes out there was a huge difference in whether someone was asked for an interview uh, or not and so there's just bias even at looking at things like names uh, there's also uh, some great work being done on the west coast in terms of hiring uh, people with autism you know for a long time there was a perception that people with autism couldn't function in the corporate environment what people found out is if you change the way you hire and select and you really look at the talents that some of those people bring to the table, there are jobs in which they do a better job. They do better work than a lot of other people. And so there's some real great work being done hiring people that don't normally get hired uh, because they made an effort to get past that bias. Uh, there's a lot of technology people are using to drive past uh, bias where they're doing blind um, work product. They look at people's work product to determine whether they want to bring them in to the company as opposed to interviewing them first. And that brings in a lot more diverse um, pool of people uh, to your work environment when you do things like that. I definitely do want to get into some of the solutions, but um, I'm familiar with that research. And if I remember correctly, the people were the people that selected white sounding names more than uh, ethnic sounding names were asked w- why they chose the person that they did. And they said that they felt they were more qualified, which we know that the resumes were identical. And that's just a, a confirmation that people are really unaware of this happening inside themselves. That's true. And they also create um, connections with different things. So they felt they were more qualified. They didn't know they were acting in a racially based potentially a racially based way uh but they were and and they did it with good intent but it was a terrible outcome and it's because they tied qualifications and other things to the sound of a name and they were unaware they were even pulling that off so it's very dangerous i do want to point out this is more than just gender sexual orientation race this this can play a role in terms of things that are People don't even think about that. Are, they don't even think are issues or should be concerned with what college you went to. Uh, it can come out, you know, in terms of things like where you were born in the country. Were you from the north versus the south? 
personality styles at work. You have people that work in organizations that value extroversion. And so if you're introverted, it can hurt your career. So the key thing we really need to be paying attention to is how do we value people for what they bring to the table and give them that credit for what they bring to the table, as opposed to letting our bias make those decisions, regardless of whether it's a protected class or some other factor. It seems like such a massive undertaking to try and alter the way that we perceive things, especially with so many different ways, as you mentioned, of being biased. I've asked a few professionals um, over the years, and my understanding is that really the most important thing you can do from the get-go is make people aware of their own biases. Do you have any, do you agree with that? And do you have any recommendations for how people can sort of confront themselves? I completely agree with that. I think we all need to take a look at our lives and what we've been exposed to. So, you know, one of the things that I do is I ask people to think about um, who, who they surround themselves with, who is in their life on a regular basis, and what, what, they, what types of activities and things that they do. And then I usually give them um, different types of things that they may not have encountered. Have you been to a, a, a Buddhist uh, temple? Have you been to a mosque? Um, have you visited this country? Have you engaged in this local community group? Have you, you know, those kinds of things. And when you get a lot of no's, uh, it really helps people begin to go, I've got to open up my horizon here and experience different things. I've asked people to do things like get coaches who can challenge them at their bias. Uh, you can take assessments that help you look at your, your bias. And one of the other things that I encourage people to do is to really become familiar with and get trained in emotional intelligence. The more self-aware we are and the more empathy we create, the more likely it is uh, that we're going to have less bias because we will be aware when it's when it's happening, right? We'll become more focused on overcoming that bias. And I think emotional intelligence is a fantastic tool for doing that. We also put people through experiences. Uh, through experiential activities that have people uh, really understand bias. So for instance, we do an activity which we split people up into different groups. We teach them norms, customs, uh, languages, everything, get them very comfortable with uh, the culture that they are now a part of, if you will. We let them practice. And then we, we create a diplomatic mission for both groups to visit each other. And, um, and then come back and share the results of their visit and try and build a relationship. In less than an hour, people are very biased and have stereotyped the other group. And what's amazing is it, it creates an opportunity to have a conversation that, that basically allows you to, uh, how would I say this, to admit, right, that we all fall prey to this. And that if that happened in an hour, what's happened to us over 30, 40, 50 years? And so that kind of experiential activity that tugs at people's heart and gives an eye-opening experience to their mind allows people to be open-minded to the fact that we all are biased as opposed to being defensive. The other thing it does is it lets people know that regardless of your background, whether you're a woman, a man, Latino, Asian, Caucasian, doesn't matter. We all develop biases, and so we're all in this together. And one of the great things that I think inclusion training should do and unconscious bias training should do is rather than focusing on telling people 
don't do micro affirmations or, or, or microaggressions or whatever the case may be. It should let people know that when we slip up and we make a mistake, it's an opportunity for people to learn. And because we all come in with bias and we all need to learn, we should help each other learn rather than demonize and attack. And I think the biggest thing we can do is start a conversation as opposed to damn people for making a mistake. Yeah, that's a really good exercise. <clears throat> and one of the points I was I was going to make is that, you know, people are very sensitive to their own biases. I remember when all these police shootings um, were hitting the news a couple years ago. Um, there was a uh, a test going around that was to for anyone to take. Um, a major university put it out. I forget which one, but it was to understand your own biases. But it was you know it was organized around race, and you know I took it thinking that I'm an open and understanding individual and that I wouldn't have these biases. And it was very unpleasant to learn how much of that was in me. And I know I'm not alone in feeling that way. So when you approach someone about trying to show them that they have biases, you know, I assume you have to be pretty careful about how you frame that so you don't get people to be very defensive and say, well, I'm not a racist or I'm not a bigot uh, because they're so sensitive to that that issue. And I, the idea of allowing people to organically prove their own biases in a room in a kind of a controlled scenario is a really, really smart one. I, I would agree with you. And it's been my concern about a lot of the um, training and interventions that have happened. Too many people have spent time um, trying to make a quick point and they open up a can of worms. They get people very upset, raw, and then they walk out and people are left in pieces upset, frustrated, angry, feeling like a victim, feeling like an oppressor, feeling like whatever the case may be. And it's caused more conflict and chaos as opposed to helping. And, and, and the sad part about it is, it, is it's really typically been focused largely on, uh, in many cases, racial or religious differences and promoting um, the fact that the minority has been oppressed and the majority has been the oppressor, as opposed to helping people become aware of their own biases and understanding how we are all a part of this and we are all needed to get out of this mess. And that, you know, quite frankly, if we're on the same team, we can help each other. And, I, and you know, when you do that and you work with people in the right way, it's amazing how people team together, how people mm. cross boundaries help one another and they create an environment where everyone feels safe, valued and respected consistently every day. That's what we're trying to create, an environment where people feel safe, valued and respected consistently. And you can only do that together, not when you're on separate teams. It's a, it's a great message, you know. I mean, it takes a lifetime to develop these biases. And while there might be a certain shock value in proving that someone has you know, a racial bias or a gender bias, you know, like you say, if you leave right after that, it could take a long, it's going to take a long time to unpack all that. And if the support isn't there, I mean, people don't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with my feelings when I took that test. I mean, I've sorted through it, but I think I came out on the other side better, but it's, it wasn't easy. No, no, it's not. And in some cases, people come out better. In other cases, people come out worse, they go into a cave, they withdraw, 
you now, for instance, with Me Too, you have men that won't coach women, uh, won't meet with women because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble, even if they didn't do anything wrong. And so you have, whenever we have these shock value incidents, uh, good things can come out of them and bad things can come out of them. And, and what was concerning to me is we, we look at the world today in gotcha moments. And that's not even just with um, bias. It's with everything. It's with politics, et cetera. We are no longer capable of having conversations as a society that are serious. What we do is we stereotype, we, um, we attack, we demonize. And, uh, and, and so, you know, if you look at what's happening on Facebook, you look at what's happening in the public square, you can't say we're better off today um, in terms of our dialogue than we were 20 years ago. It's, it's awful. And uh, we're at a very difficult moment in time. We have to get better at listening to each other, really hearing and understanding each other, having empathy for one another, and then coming together to solve problems. That's the only way it's going to work. And it can't be based on gotcha moments. can't be based on shock value. It's got to be based on understanding. It's a, it's a great point. I know that um, there are a lot of, there's a fascination, particularly in HR with automation, <laughs> with software solutions. I mean, of course, and, uh, people have come up with automated solutions for eliminating bias or have made tools for particularly hiring tools, um, with the idea that if AI is behind it, then it won't be biased. Um, I think. I know differently, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. It's already been made clear that there's bias in the programming. So you're not going to get rid of bias just through AI. Here's my concern. Every time a new technology comes out, people are looking for the silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. First of all, you should have a thoughtful process for selection. And when I say process, that means that you have multiple components to your selection process and they check and balance each other as opposed to looking for that silver bullet and that's not just with selection it's with other things as well in terms of organizational life you know we have this tendency to look for an easy answer you see the fads come and go uh, and, and it's a constant and, and the truth is they haven't solved our problems I'm still working on issues around leadership. How long have we studied leadership and how long have we tried to create great leadership? Engagement, employee engagement. Good Lord, our engagement scores <laughs> across this country are no better than they were years ago. How long have people been working on engagement and doing engagement surveys? And it's not better. And the biggest reason I'm going to say, quite frankly, is we don't really look to dive in as a society and do the work. We look to collect data. Okay, this is the problem. Let's make our checklist. We checked it off. Next year, we take the survey and we find we still have a problem. Well, it's because the culture didn't really change. It's because we didn't do the real work. It reminds me of, do you remember the Baldrige Awards? Okay, so they were a quality awards group a long time ago. One of the big, big awards years ago, I think it was in the 80s, and the first organization I think that won was, I think it was Florida Power and Light. And part of the award structure was that you had to share what you did with other groups, other companies, organizations. 
And, um, and so they did. And they did really well for their business because they didn't do the award to get the award. They actually went through the process to better their organization. But once the award got notoriety, companies left and right tried to get the award by checking the boxes. They would do things like take water, power, and lights values, basically copy them and change a word here and there to make it better fit their organization. And what they found was it didn't help their business. And in fact, in some cases, it actually hurt their business. But they had done everything they were supposed to to be a quality organization, but they really hadn't. It was because it was superficial. And, I, and all too often, I think we get caught up in, in that effort of let's fix it. Let's fix it quickly. What's working? What's going to fix this right away? And now it's automation. It's technology. But I'll remind you, when word processing came out, we said that was going to be the thing that was going to change our environments and make it all better. And people would have an easier time at work. They'd have more time. They wouldn't have to fix mistakes, et cetera. And what, six months to a year later, what did we do? We fired a bunch of people because we could get more done with less people. And we upped the productivity levels. And we've done that so often that now we have stress levels in this country that are so high, it's ridiculous. And people have physical ailments because of it. The truth is there's no silver bullet. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. I don't think that for anything, silver no. bullets don't really exist other than, of course, the fact that, well, I'll probably edit this part out, but they also don't actually exist. And like werewolves aren't real, right? You're never going to, you know, it's it's so funny that they that people like focused on that so hard. It's like, they do. They do. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> um, let's move let's move towards a some what what do we have that's promising and that's positive you know it's it's easy to identify the problems and you've offered some solutions how can particularly i'm looking at small and mid-sized companies uh, that may not have the resources of a fortune 500 company um, how do they get get started and how do they really make a splash well i think the first thing that they need to do is they need to be they need to make a commitment uh, that diversity inclusion are important to them to their business uh, and and to them personally you know one of the things that I think makes the biggest difference is that it starts at the top you know most businesses that really understand this have some leader that at some point in their life became much more aware of this. The, I'll even use the term conversion point, right? You know, where all of a sudden they went, wow, right? I get this. And, uh, and I think in many cases, um, you, you really need that. If you have an organization where HR or some manager is taking it on, and yet the CEO or president doesn't care about it, uh, it's doomed before it starts. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is I, I actually think people should tie it to the business. I remember I worked for a large healthcare company years ago and um, they were in trouble with the EEOC. And, uh, you know, the truth was that they, there was a, a bias towards hiring white males in the healthcare industry to run uh, the networks. And we had to convince, uh, and it helped because they were in trouble with the EEOC, they were getting fined. Um, it, we had to convince them to have a pilot where we would hire um, differently. And we went to down to Florida, Southern Florida, and we hired some executive directors for the networks down there that were of a Latino background. 
And what was amazing was how much faster things progressed, how much better the numbers were. And it made the senior executives go, hmm, maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's something that uh, that we're not thinking about here. We thought we understood the market and we don't, right? And so that shifted the culture of the company uh, and, and made them realize the business is better off with diversity. We have to think about how this strategically helps our business and tie diversity to our strategy. Well, if you as a business can do that, even if you don't have top-down leadership support for everything, if you can do something like that, a pilot, you have the ability to create a real sense of value that a senior executive is going to see, and they'll, then they'll buy in. And so I think that's the secondary piece that you have to engage in. If you either have senior leadership support or you gain it through a pilot such as that, and then from there, I think it's really about creating an inclusion story. You can do that through experiences, training, et cetera, with your people that helps them understand what it's like um, to not feel included. You know, one of the analogies we use is we use the concept of a, of a home, you know, that sense of shared experience, shared values, um, personalization, and making it about, you know, it, it's part of you. And we ask people to think if you were locked out of a house and you saw people you knew in that house that you thought you were supposed to be part of that group, they're enjoying themselves, watching TV, having a drink, whatever the case may be. You're outside, it's dark, it's cold, maybe it starts raining, you're hearing noises. How are you feeling? And the concept that they come back with is, I'm scared, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm vulnerable, right? And we end up saying, how many of your people feel like they're not in the home? How many people feel like they're locked out? And so we have this conversation and when they start to think about it that way, as opposed to about race or gender or sexual orientation, all of a sudden they start to see people who are different as human, right? We've, 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 they compare it to, to themselves. Instead of some identity or some concept, they recognize it's about humanity and feelings. They don't want to feel locked out and they don't want anybody else to feel locked out. And all of a sudden you talk about how that impacts people's work. And, and their ability to be part of a team and their performance and everything else. And people say, we've got to stop that. We've got to make sure everybody feels like they have a place and a space in our home. And that becomes a shift. I think small and medium-sized companies can absolutely do that. It's a concept of looking for co what's common and what's, what's different. I've heard discussion about this with trying to bridge the gap between political parties. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at what's different between them, it's a laundry list and it can seem insurmountable. How would you ever find common ground? But then if you look at how many of their values and beliefs line up, you start from the perspective of what's the same. It's a vastly outweighs those differences. It gives you, it also gives you the energy and the desire and the commitment to work on, on getting through the differences. Yeah, because it's pot. It seems suddenly possible, right? Yeah, correct. I also want to point out one thing. I would tell organizations: be very careful. Sometimes, with best intentions, we do things that have bad results. So, I have a friend of mine from college who worked for a very large public accounting firm. Uh, my friend happens to be African American, and uh, and one day he quit. And I was shocked because he was on the fast track to become partner. He mm. was doing great. 
And so I asked him, why did you quit? I said, come on, man, you were on the fast track to be partner. He said, yeah, but I wanted to know that I was being promoted for the right reasons. I said, what do you mean? He said, we have such a huge focus on diversity that I wasn't sure whether I was getting ahead because of my work or because of the color of my skin. I know I do good work, but I wasn't sure that they were paying attention to that. And he quit because he wanted to prove that he was a fantastic accountant. Started a business, grew it, and it's done incredibly well. He's made, he's proven that. But the sad part is they lost a fantastic person and a very strong talent because he couldn't tell whether they valued him as a whole person or for one facet. Even with the best intentions, we can alienate people. That's a really important story. A little bit earlier, we were talking about, you know, uh, you were mentioning that company that companies that copied the values of a company that was successful and tried to sort of apply them to their own organization failed. Um, and it really comes down to whether, you know, people are very sensitive to window dressing. Like we, even little kids know when you're not being genuine. Absolutely. You know, and they're suspicious. And it's, it, I can only imagine how difficult it is to frame something that people can really get behind, especially if you're just starting a new initiative, that something you haven't been doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. And I think the way around that is you, you have to learn to have real conversations. Um, you have to learn to really engage different people. Uh, you have to uh, make sure that people are involved in solving problems who are close to them. And, I, I, and unfortunately, I think all too often, a lot of decisions get made in HR or at a very high level in an organization. And when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road, and when it comes down to people interacting with people, uh, the, the, those that are in the trenches that are affected by those decisions, in many cases, aren't always involved in those decisions or they aren't heard. And, and that becomes a real problem or challenge. So we, we can't make decisions from afar. We have to be close. Or as Brian, uh, Brian Stevens says, um, you have to be, you have to have proximity to the problem, right? And I think that's a fantastic phrase. We, we need to be close to the issue if we're going to help solve it. Well, Brad, I think that's a, about all the time we have, but um, this has been great and I really appreciate you you talking with me today. Well, my pleasure. I enjoyed it and uh, I wish you well and I thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, listeners, if you want to hear more from Brad, he will be uh, joining our event, HR Comply uh, 2019. That takes place in Nashville, Tennessee on November 14th. And the name of his session is Eradicating Unconscious Bias how to build a diverse workplace and equalize hiring, pay, and performance-based decisions. I will include more information in the description. Also, if you ever want to provide suggestions or if you have anything you want to say, just let us know on our Twitter feed at HRWorks Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.